And so my goals were pretty straightforward, but because of, you know, the immediate success and ultimate trajectory of the business, it changed really fast. And I think like in those four years, not only was I able to build out teams of like complete rock star performance marketers or integrated marketers, but we we eventually scaled that budget to $7 million a month. Today at Hennessy Studios, we get down to business with CEO and savvy entrepreneur, Terry Rockovich. At just 36 years old, this diehard Steelers fan is a fundraising genius who gives us the inside scoop on how she turned thousands into millions. Tune in as we delve deep into what it takes to build a successful brand from the ground up with the co-founder of Jinx, a pet wellness brand that sells premium food for dogs. Terry is a true jack of all trades when it comes to business and marketing, and her impressive range of high-level experience makes for a jam-packed episode filled with unique knowledge, entertaining anecdotes, and even a few rounds of advanced dog trivia. So if we got any dog lovers listening today, curl up and get comfy, because you're in for a real treat. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for Appreciate having me. Appreciate that. Of course. So where did you come in from? Where do you live? I'm in West Hollywood. Okay. Yeah, so not too far. And you're not from California though, right? I'm not. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh. Yeah. So do you want to like, leave the cold or I want to hear that story? So how did you end up from Pittsburgh to Hollywood? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. So I spent the first 25 years of my life there. I went to school um, at a small Catholic college called St. Francis University and then immediately went back to Pittsburgh and got my first gig at an agency. Um, uh-huh. moved in with my best friend and just like lived my best life for the first two and a half years post-college, but then started to get the itch to not only leave the agency life, which was a hard and intense one, uh-huh. um, and potentially move to the brand side, but then also just spread my wings and try a different environment. So I looked for an opportunity that kind of provided both of those things, mm-hmm. um, which led me to San Francisco and then... I've just hopped around ever since. Interesting. So let's let's di- like digest that a little bit. Yeah. So what what were you like as a kid? Oh man, I was like a child that liked everything. Okay. And I think that you know that is demonstrated through a bunch of things, but it was like I wanted to play every sport. And I also wanted to, like, do ballet and be a cheerleader. Okay. Um, I loved animals. And so I was most inspired to become a vet. And then that kind of professional desire changed to delivering babies. And then it changed to being a lawyer. And Uh so it was just kind of like everything felt interesting to me. Sure. Um, And so I think, you know, as a kid, that kind of shows up as just generally, like, blooming where you're planted and— leaning into things and some things didn't feel right, um, either by way of like not being instinctually uh, appropriate or, you know, just certain crowds didn't feel right for me. But I think generally speaking, like I like a lot of things. Yeah. Um, And so I just ended up being, you know, engaged in a lot of different activities and teams and friend circles and and so forth. So you had some busy parents taking you all over the place. I did. This practice, that practice. I did. Here. Huh? You know what? Yeah. What what, uh, what did your parents do for a living? Uh, my mom was in journalism. Okay. And she ended up being 
uh, a speechwriter for executives at Westinghouse, which was a big company, one of the bigger companies based in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And then my dad was a civil engineer and worked for the U.S. Army Corps for his entire career. Is that right? Was yeah. he military too? Prior military? He was not. His father was. Okay. Um, but no, he just, he held the same you know, the same type of role and then moved up the ladder at the same company for over 35 years and had a beautiful retirement in Swansong. Um, but it's funny because he was always so structured and pragmatic as engineers are. Mm-hmm. And then my mom was kind of like the dreamer yeah, and the one that was very encouraging in terms of trying new things and taking big risks. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was nice to have that dynamic, like someone to keep you grounded and then someone to kind of like push you into the deep end and lead you to believe that she was there to jump in, you know, if you start to drown. Yeah. That yin and yang. Yeah. 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 So, um, well, did, was there yellow towels at your house? Are you a big Steelers fan? Is that like, that's like a rite of passage, right? Yeah. When it's you beat into there. you. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I moved around. So I've lived in San Francisco, New York, Austin, and now LA. And like, I'm, I'm not allowed to like any other sports. You're team. not. No, no. Right. It's black and gold all the way. Uh huh. So, yeah. so yeah, lots of terrible towels. And, and of course you have to have education on the three primary sports teams. So Penguins, Pirates, Steelers, but um, I still, I still rep them, you know, whether they're having great seasons sure. or not so great seasons. Oh, die hard. Yeah, that's just. <laughs> you have to. Uh-huh. I think now being more resolved in my mid-30s, I'm so proud of growing up there. And it really is a charming town. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's made a lot of progress, I would say, like in the past decade in terms of the art scene and the food culture and, and all of that good stuff. So it's really nice to go back. And you said you grew up in a in a, a big Italian family, is that right? Italian and Polish, yeah. Okay. But as you can imagine, the Italian overrides. Oh yeah. Uh huh. So yep. it, it felt very Italian. That's the only type of food I can cook. It's the only type of food I can qualify. So, yeah, uh, yeah I identify more as Italian than anything else. Oh, and Ita- like big Italian families. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, I I come from it myself. Yeah, yeah. you know. There's always drama and this and that and food. And Mm -hmm. I can't believe they got you this for your birthday. I got them that, right? There's all of that, like the drama, right? Yeah. They live hard and love hard. They sure do. (laughs) And fight hard. They sure do. (laughs) So now as a kid, did you ever have any type of entrepreneurial like spark? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, was definitely that kid who was trying to rally the neighborhood kids to kind of get together and like monetize something, whether it was selling the stuff that we didn't want anymore. I sold my brother's Legos at okay. some point. Hopefully and then, he knew about it. Yeah, he didn't. Um, <laughs> of course he did. But I was like the lemonade stand uh-huh. uh, att- attendee and like I would bake with my mom and then try to sell that stuff. And so there was this really weird attraction to just like monetizing things. And like, I really valued cash in a way where I hoarded it, but I felt very entitled to then do with it what I wanted to do instead of having to rely on somebody else to grant me the money or tell me how I could spend it. Um, And I think honestly, I still have that same mentality today, like having my own wealth kind of enables a sense of power um, and authority and and unlocks confidence in a way where, you know, I I value it in a way that I think is, um, is balanced and even, but allows me to really kind of drive my own decisions instead of having, yeah, instead of mm-hmm. having to ask for permission. Yeah, having more control. Now, did you have um, 
uh, uh, like dogs as uh, growing up? Or they did. a big pet family or what? Big pet family. Really? Yeah, I think the most animals we had in our household at any one time was 13. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, I mean, we lived in a suburb, and my parents had a nice big lot with some property. But, I mean, these were all domesticated, like, under one roof animals. And so mm-hmm. we had dogs, cats, hamsters, mm. snakes, fish, ferrets, and hamsters. All at the uh, same time. And, and gerbils. <laughs> yeah, all at the same time. Uh-huh. And so I was a huge animal lover. And even through college, I adopted or rescued one animal per year. So I had a cat my freshman year, a cat my sophomore year, a dog my junior year, and hmm. another dog my senior year. And my, my dad at one point was like, okay, it's it's like the animals are me. I'm moving out if you bring Your dad was insane if he allowed that many animals oh, in yeah. his house at one time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I would, I would like, hide them, and I'd be like, it's my responsibility. They'll live in my room. Sure, they will. And, you know, my parents ended up really, like, eating the burden uh-huh. As we all do. Yeah. I'm living that right now. <laughs> I've got— uh, My son wanted a hamster, so we got two hamsters. We've got two dogs. We've got— uh, fish, you know, like, yeah. A but, farm. Yeah. A little farm. A little farm, right? Yeah. But I'll take care of them. Sure you will, right? Yeah. The water's empty. <laughs> I'm rocking up there to fill up the hamster water, right? Yeah. Yeah. Have you, now being like an animal lover, did you have any incidents where you got a little too close to a dog or they bit you or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. I was, I was bitten twice. Okay. Um. So my family usually rescued uh, labs and golden retrievers. And so yeah. that was the primary breed we had growing up. And, um, one of our retrievers was in the front yard and he was chewing on a bone and I stuck my hand in his mouth and he had bit down pretty hard, which also punctured skin and oh. required stitches. So there were like two incidents, but I knew that it was not because of the dog. Yeah. And and so it really just helped to inform the way that I reacted to animals, reacting to things. Uh-huh. Um, and so it was never a deterrent. I don't think in terms of just like my relationship and my love sure. for animals. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's uh, and, and here, like I'm going to talk about Jinx, your company. Yeah. So before we get into Jinx, and I want to learn a lot more about that, but um, Whitney, our producers put together a little game here. Um, and so let's see here. This is a game that we're going to play and it's a dog trivia game. Ooh. Right. And there's no winning or losing, you know. If anything, it'll be educational for both of us. But we'll just kind of see how much you know about these random questions. Let's do it. And I will say that we did have a Jeopardy champion on uh, at one point. Scott Trump, his name. No pressure. And so his questions were really tough. Whitney Mm -hmm. gave him some tough ones. Yeah. All right. So we're going to ask 10 questions here. And they are all multiple choice. So should be pretty easy. All right. All right. A dog's sense of smell is 10 times better than a human, 100 times better than a human, or 40 times better than a human. 40. Wow. Starting on the right foot. <laughs> nice job. Dogs are about as intelligent at what human age? So dogs are about as intelligent as what human age? Six months old, two years old, or one year old? I think it depends on the dog because I've had some really, I have a shepherd right now who's brilliant. Okay. Um, I would say, I would say two. And you are right. Okay. Good job. Mm-hmm. Two for two. 
True or false, a dog's nose prints is unique and very similar to a human's fingerprints. True. Good job. The sound of yawning, this is a true or false question, by a human is also contagious for dogs. False. It's true here, but oh, it might wow. be an isolated kind of a thing, right? Maybe it's not, but it's true on this one. But so far, you're doing pretty good. And we should test that out later with our dogs. Yeah. Go yawn and well, I'm, see I'm what like they do. reflecting and I'm trying to think like if the, I know it's contagious with humans for sure. Oh, it totally is. I don't even know how that even happens, right? Yeah. yeah. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. I don't know what it triggers, but now I'm definitely going to test it with my pups. Uh huh. How many pet dogs are there roughly in the United States? 75 million, 100 million, 125 million. Ooh. So the last stat I heard was 90. Okay. So, and I'm actually unsure if that's like domesticated or total population. True. So it's a tough, it's a loaded question. I'll go with, I'll go with the middle number. I think it was 100. 100. Yeah. You, it's 75 here, but who knows when this was taken and it might be a little bit more, especially with COVID, a lot more dog owners. Oh yeah. To, it happened in COVID. Yeah. So, a person who hunts with a beagle is known as a brace, a beagler, or a check cord. Where did you get these questions? <laughs> <laughs> She's looking at Whitney, not me. Um, okay, what were the options again? So this is a person that goes hunting with a beagle. Okay. Um, and they refer to themselves as a brace, a beagler, or a check cord. I've ne I have never heard either of those, uh -huh. any of those words. Um, go with the more obvious one. A beagler? Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'll throw you a bone there. Thank you. Pun intended. See? Uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I feel like I should know this. I've got relatives that hunt, but not with animals. Uh, what? kind of dog's sense of smell is so accurate that it could actually be used in the court of law. This would be either a Basset Hound, a Bloodhound, or a German Shepherd. Shepherd? It's actually a Bloodhound. Oh, man. I, and I do a lot of work with lawyers, and I had no clue about that. See? Yeah. So I have a I have a, an older rescue who has hunting dog and hound and beagle uh -huh. in him and he can't smell for shit really but my shepherd on the other hand it's like if we're eating dinner outside and he's two rooms away he mm -hmm. will awake from a dead sleep and and come and find the food is that so right that's, yeah okay. it's more anecdotal than anything but i mean mm -hmm. it makes sense that it's a hound because yeah they're used so often for sport so there it is what Beatles song has a frequency at the end of the song that only dogs can hear? A Day in the Life, I Want to Hold Your Hand, or Twist and Shout? This is a fun one. Um, <laughs> I'll go with Twist and Shout. It's A Day in the Life. Now I want to go listen to that song. True or false, the Golden Doodle is the most popular breed in the U.S. according to the American Kennel Club as of 2021. False. You're right. 
You want to take a guess at what is the yes, most popular like a retriever or a lab? You're right. Yeah. Good job. Laboratory retriever is the uh, most popular. And the last question. You did pretty well so far. It I'm started impressed. strong. Yeah, I don't know good. what I fell apart halfway through. Some of those were like <laughs> statistical questions, right? You know, um, where do dogs sweat? On the back of their coat, through their saliva, or through the pads of their feet? I'll say the pads of their feet. And you would be right. All right. So Started strong, finished strong. You did finish All strong. All right. Let's delete what happened in the middle there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, good. You go by our editor at a Starbucks or something. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for playing along. Yeah, that was fun. That was I fun. I learned something new, which See? you can't say happens every podcast interview. That's right. <laughs> yes. All right. So before we kind of get into Jinx and learning a little bit more about your business mm -hmm. now, I want to learn how you kind of even got to where you are. So you graduated college, you said you were working at a digital a digital marketing agency. Is yeah. that right? Yep. And what was your role at the agency? What were you doing? So, I mean, I started entry level and okay. I was like an account associate. And so I'm sure you're familiar with like the leveling that happens at agencies. And so I was just like pounded with all of the shit work. Oh, yeah. And so it was like a lot of late nights and research and preparation and editing of client deliverables and and just the stuff that like the account managers didn't want to do. And so um, I had graduated in 2007, okay. 2008 hit and there was worst time. Yeah. the financial crisis. And so in addition to kind of being like the lowest ring on the totem pole, um, we had laid off half of the staff. And so it was half of the resources. But still having to fulfill the services that you were selling Completely, to the client. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. And so um, it provided an opportunity for me to take on more client-facing work, um, which I really loved and just generally like leaned into. And mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, Net net, it was almost like having worked with Fortune 500 clients and then really small businesses. I was attracted to the earlier stage companies, and so really early on in my career, I was like, of course, it's great to have millions of dollars to spend in terms of advertising. Sure. But I'm trying to get creative with much smaller assets, um, and and just generally like a scrappier team and a flexible strategy was so much more interesting to me. And so when the opportunity presented itself to move to an early stage company, a startup yep. um, that was headquartered in Pittsburgh, but had raised some capital and was opening offices on the West Coast, um, part of me was really eager to step into a role with a little bit more authority and then also just the power to drive strategy and see results and not have to kind of work through the client as a filter. Sure. Or multiple um, clients. Yeah. Or multiple <clears throat> clients. Yeah. yeah. And so being so much closer to the work was really interesting to me. And then um, also part of that was, you know, taking a role with the understanding that I would be relocating to San Francisco. And and where were you at the time? I was in Pittsburgh. So you were back home in yeah, Pittsburgh. I was okay. back home post-college, kind of trying to figure out if my parents would even support that type of decision because I'm very close with my family. Mm -hmm. um, and and they were definitely supportive. They encouraged me. They were like, it's a plane ride away. Mm -hmm. um, and so I stepped into that next thing um, and immediately just assimilated and felt so right about the decision. Um, relocated to San Francisco and then just really started to get a knack for 
um, being able to build like agile strategies and teams to execute that weren't necessarily um, interested in having like really defined or streamlined responsibility sets, but instead kind of became this like jack of all trades that could pinch hit in any one direction if needed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was really where I started to think about carving out a track um, in startup culture and then eventually, you know, became inspired to be an entrepreneur myself. And what was the startup that you were working for? I was working for ModCloth. Mod cloth. Okay. Yeah. So it's a uh, vintage inspired apparel company okay. for women. They started the business in her dorm room and she was really just trying to exit some of the vintage items that she accumulated mm-hmm. through her hobby, which was vintage shopping. Um, and so it started off kind of selling one of a kind pieces and then grew into um, kind of just like a hosting point for a bunch of indie apparel brands. Okay. Um, But it was great. I mean, I think, you know, this was when social media really started to take off. Sure. In 2007, 2008, 2009. And so we were really early adopters of using social to drive engagement and favorability and awareness and customer acquisition. And so being close to the marketplace at such like an early and nuanced stage uh, was really special. And I think like it was definitely a moment in time and Mm. now it's a completely different ballgame. Sure. And so how long were you there for? I was there for four years. So you were at the agency first for how many years? About two and a half. So you got a lot of agency experience and you Mm -hmm. went over got the startup experience and then you ended up at Casper. Is that right? I was at Casper. Yeah. So I was in San Francisco working for ModCloth. Um, I just kind of felt like my time there had had expired in the sense that, you know, I was brushing up against the ceiling and it really didn't seem like um, there was much more upward movement or opportunity for me. So I started to host conversations, knew I wanted to go work for another really early stage company, um, had an introduction made from like a friend of a friend to an investor, a seed investor in Casper's business. Um, And then I spoke with the guys there and uh, they had offered me a job and I felt really unsure about relocating to New York and accepting a role at a company that hadn't launched yet. So coming back from San Francisco all the way back to the East Coast. All the way back to the East Coast. Uh And then I was like, I will never make that move again. And here here we are in L.A. where Uh I don't think I'm going to leave. But um I was hesitant to make the move. I was hesitant to work for a company that hadn't launched yet. Um, I was definitely, you know, unsure about working with people that I've never shared a beer with. And Mm. I had never shaken their hand. Like everything was done remotely Mm -hmm. um, in terms of getting to know each other and going through the interview process. And so I was like, let me come and meet you guys and, you know, let's start a working relationship. And if it feels great, then let's go. Yeah. And that just so happened to be a couple of weeks leading up to their launch. And it was almost like I knew immediately it was something special. I loved the founding team. Um, and I think, to be honest, like that has been uh, very much so a part of my experience that has led me to where I am today. It's just meeting people and kind of like waiting for your orbits to to kind of pass and connect and yeah. Certain things feel more right than other things. And so it really is just like using a bit of your gut to figure out like what you want to be a part of. So what was your specific role at Casper? What were you doing there? So I was the I was the second employee. 
the first Is marketing right? hire. Yeah. Wow. I joined them pre-launch. And uh, I started managing their advertising strategy and portfolio. Um, so they were like, we've got $30,000 a month. Like, go triple it. And that was that was truly the mandate. And so I was really tactically um, setting up digital campaigns, like performance-minded campaigns to make sure that that money was like, invested in working media getting the and best to, ROI from of course yeah, uh-huh. you know you know you know of course. the deal uh-huh. um and so my goals were pretty straightforward but because of you know the immediate success and ultimate trajectory of the business it changed really fast and i think like in those 4 years um not only was i able to build out teams of like complete rock star performance marketers or integrated marketers um but we we eventually scaled that budget to $7 million a month. Wow. And so it was having kind of like in the trenches experience about starting, you know, a media portfolio, building that foundation into something that felt very significant. And then uh, I had hired probably like 60 people. I think by the time I left, I was managing 62 people. And I had inherited a couple of different marketing functions. And so... Like, again, it feels like such a, it feels like such a ride and, and like, you know, a fast one at that. And I don't think I even appreciated my growth in the moment until after I was past it. Sure. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, well, the thing about Casper is they had such a cool story too, yeah. right? It's, it reminds me of like Zappos. Mm-hmm. Um, like when Zappos first started, they were like, how do you disrupt like selling shoes online? Right. right? And what they did, which was so brilliant was they made their customer experience their story. Yep. Right? And that is how they got all the media and the attention. Mm-hmm. It was more about the customer experience and not so much about the shoes anymore. Yeah. Right? Yep, totally. So for, while you were at Casper, you met a lot of interesting people. Mm-hmm. And some of which are, is it one or two partners? Two. Two. Yeah. My co-founders today were former co-workers at Casper and, and also part of the founding team. And so how did that, you guys all love dogs and you guys mm-hmm. socialized together and you had this wild idea. Tell, tell me a little bit more about how this kind of even like the, the genesis of this. Yeah, yeah. So we were first coworkers and then just eventually, as you can imagine, uh, became really great friends. So we worked together pretty intimately cross-functionally, mm-hmm. um, especially while we were still a really small team. Um, and Michael, one of my co-founders was the only person I would leave my dog blitz with when I traveled. Okay. Like it was, it was a very short list. Yeah. Uh And sometimes my mom would drive in from Pittsburgh and stay in my place in Dumbo, Brooklyn and watch my dog. And if she was not available to make that trip or stay for a week, um, then Michael was the designated dog babysitter. Sure. Um, and so we just, we were all pretty dog obsessed. Um, Casper had moved around in terms of offices, but was generally dog friendly. And so I'd bring my pups in and, um, and everyone was just kind of like, you know, ultimately really inspired to be entrepreneurs, but also disrupt another industry that felt outdated and antiquated. And, you know, I think that buying dog food can be like, such a monotonous task mm-hmm. where you try to be thoughtful, but ultimately there's like a million other things to to be concerned with. And if you've got children, like there's there's definitely a level of priority, right? And so I had had uh, definitely my own drama with my dog and all of his health issues and his picky palate and, you know, feeding him something that he enjoyed 
but was also good for him. And what's your dog's name? His name's Blitz. Blitz, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I've got I've got another dog and a cat. Um, but he has been, uh, he's just been like my homie and my best friend for the past decade. So I actually adopted him when he moved to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. He was like, I think I moved to San Francisco in what would have been like the summer of 2010. And then I adopted him about six months later because we had a dog friendly office at Mod Cloth. And I just wanted like a companion. Sure. And I was meeting a lot of really new people, but it was like, he was such a great, conversation starter because one, he looks like the most bizarre kind of like stunted in growth Dalmatian, but he's not really, he's just like this mystery mutt of like a bunch of different breeds. Um, but he became like really like a family to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I felt very responsible for taking care of him and he, he just had a host of health issues. And so when we moved to New York, um, and those complications got more serious, uh, our food journey together was just a tough one. And I was like, you know, you think about the category and of course everything's consolidated at the top because it's owned by big CPG, but there's so many options, which creates like a lot of noise and a lot of congestion. And when you go through trying like 10 and then 15 and then 20 options and nothing works for your animal, it's confusing and it's really frustrating. Sure. I think we hit, um, we hit a point where he had a pretty severe back injury He went through surgery and then had this kind of corresponding rehabilitation that was really dependent on a clean diet because uh, his nerves were regenerating in the back half of his body. And so he just couldn't put on weight or else that would be a a huge obstacle in him recovering and regaining Mm -hmm. ultimately his mobility. And so I was cooking for him. I was ordering fresh food. I was trying to mix that with some type of dry food because if I fed him wet or fresh, it was not great stool quality. And so it was just like nothing presented itself as an easy solution for us. And Michael and Samir, my co-founders, were kind of along for the ride because it was such a traumatic experience for Blitz to go through this kind of life-altering event um, that left him partially paralyzed in his back legs. Hmm. And they saw how it affected me, and they were incredibly supportive through that journey. And then also when we came together and we were kind of kicking the tires on a business model, like this just felt so right Hmm. in terms of introducing a new brand uh, that was not only compelling and easy and convenient for the dog parent, but then also just better for the dog Mm -hmm. in terms of superior quality and as measured through digestibility, which is like the animal's ability to retain essential nutrients, um, measured through stool quality. So if you're picking up your dog's poop every day, like you can tell if it's good or if it's bad or if it's easier, if it's hard. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in that sense, we were just kind of like so hungry for a brand that resonated with us as consumers and was just generally better for our dogs. It's interesting how most businesses start with a need. Mm -hmm. Um, and it seems like that's the case. So, Michael, and you said Samir? Samir, yeah. Samir, Samir. Yeah. Um, so what was, what's their background? What were they doing at Casper, right? You were doing marketing. What were they doing? So Michael is one of those guys who's like truly a jack of all trades. He started in finance. He came from MakerBot. So he was working for another early stage company, um, really supporting the executive team. And then he came to Casper to start the customer experience team, Mm -hmm. which he grew to be the largest team at the company in a mere like two years. 
Um, and then he pivoted to the ops side of the business mm. where he really supported kind of planning logistics and supply chain. And so he had exposure to like almost every single area of the business. All his strengths were a lot of marketing people's weaknesses. Yeah. Right? I know yeah. how that is. Yeah. Totally. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he like he had just mastered kind of like all of these back of house areas. Yeah. Um, and, and he's just so technical and so analytical. And so it's really nice to have that filter, especially when you're building a business and details matter. Mm-hmm. Um, especially as you're kind of like solidifying the foundation. Um, and so he moved from customer experience to ops and just generally has like financial acumen. And so that's kind of his skill set in a nutshell. And then Samir was more of like a biz dev partnerships guy. Okay. And so he supported partnerships of all shapes and sizes. So we did uh, we did a partnership with Target with a corresponding investment where we popped in their stores and we sold the entire assortment plus some SKUs. Um, and he managed that deal in addition to how it was launched and how we partnered post-launch. How did you move from turning it from an idea into like, okay, let's, we working like part-time at night on it for a little bit. And eventually you guys left the job or like, what was the, how did that work? No, we, we kind of just ripped the bandaid off. He did. Yeah. And, okay. and took a hard pivot and then like really rallied around the idea and the business model and mm-hmm. building a pitch deck. And I think the more that we learned, the more that we realized that we needed venture capital to fund the idea because the minimum order quantities in this category are so high that it's like it's hundreds of thousands of dollars to do a small production run. Because mm-hmm. to your point, big CPG is running tons upon tons upon tons every time they go to manufacture. Yeah, And so we realized that we needed to be capitalized um, to really do this right and do this right being like hiring the right people to run product strategy. Um, and then also working with the right manufacturing partners to make sure that we were kind of uh, at the best of the best facilities in terms of all of the food that we were producing because at the end of the day, it's that's your product food. Yeah. yeah. And it, it not only has to be superior, um, but it has to be safe for the animal. And mm-hmm. so those aspects were most important. They were also really expensive to fund entirely and fund well and the right way. And so um, we really pivoted and started focusing on fundraising and, and just like capitalizing the business. So you raised seed money initially. Yep. And that was more to kind of de- engineer the product first. Mm-hmm. So you weren't selling anything yet. It was no. just it was all R and D and pre-launch. And that's really complicated. I want to kind of tune in here, right? Because um like now you're trying to determine like the pre-money valuation of a company. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. talk to me a little bit more about how did you determine that? Like, did you get consultants yeah, like to come in? our fingers and stuck them Is in that the right? wind. <laughs> yeah. No, listen, we, we had done so much like industry research mm-hmm. um, and we really started to get our hands around the landscape and the potential um, of this business if it were to start chipping at the market share that's available within the category, specifically for the type of food format that we wanted to design and offer. Um, and so, you know, we understand the multiples. We understand what the potential is with the capital that would get us through 18 months. And so that's how we kind of arrived at like a ballpark valuation that felt fair. Okay. Um, I will say, I think that, you know, being pre-product and raising money um, only happened because of the reputations that we built at Casper. So 
now you're raising money and, and you're like, what are we going to call this thing? Yeah. <laughs> like, and it's probably like, it's like we were talking about like naming your child in, in another episode. Like, so how, how did the name Jinx come up? So Jinx was my co-founder's first dog. Ah. And all of us liked the name. Like, I think he threw it on one of the mock-ups that we had in our deck just as like a placeholder. And it truly resonated with all of us. And I think like the branding exercise can be a challenging one because people usually just have different preferences. Mm -hmm. And so there often is debate in terms of like how you bring something to life. And, you know, the strategic positioning piece is a little bit more objective um, whereas, like, the color system and the language and the visual aesthetics um, are definitely, like, driven by preference and what you assume will resonate with your target audience. Um, the name from the start, even though it was added as this placeholder, was just—it just felt right. It was just the placeholder it for was a little the, bit. It was the placeholder, and uh -huh. then we were like, it, it resonates. It feels great. From a design perspective, it was really fun to play with in terms of, like, logo and tagline. Mm -hmm. And so we just we just ran with it. Hmm. I'm sure you had to consult with attorneys and trademarks mm -hmm. and all of that fun yep. stuff. Uh, were you able to get the domainjinx.com? No, we were not. So yeah, that's it's complicated. Like a, it's a gamer brand mm. oh. and a big one at that. Um, and they've they've got a very tight hold on it. So we're thinkjinx.com. Oh, okay. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so now you've got the, the name of the company. You've got some initial funding. Um, now you're looking to start hiring people or what? Yeah. So we were a team of three um, mm -hmm. with the biggest gap in terms of skill set, like really living in the product department. So we hired a consulting team that served as product strategists. So like they really advised on everything from um, R&D and testing through manufacturing and food safety. Mm -hmm. So they, they filled that plug, which really like rounded out the team from a skill set perspective for the first 12 months. And so we were really off to the races for about a year before we started to think about hiring. Mm -hmm. um, I will say, just generally speaking, like if I could go back and do it over again, I would hire sooner just yeah. because we waited until we were ready to launch. And then, as you know, hiring can take a really long time. Sure does. Yeah. <laughs> from like sourcing and recruiting through the interview process. And you didn't have an HR person to help you. You guys were doing it, no, right? No, we were doing, yeah, yeah. We were doing like all of the LinkedIn stalking ourselves. Yeah. And, and just networking really aggressively. So I think we waited a little too late to start to build out the non-founding team. Um, but we did secure some really good talent, I think, just like by way of decent timing. And then we could have never prepared for what we stepped into, which was like the height of the pandemic. That's when you launched, right? We launched in January of 2020. We soft launched the brand and we just wanted to make sure like the website was working and product was getting where it was supposed to go and customer reception for like that first 1000 customers was favorable and, and everything was kind of manageable from a customer experience standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, but then we were getting ready to announce and that was, that brought us to March and April. And I would say like, that's when stay at home orders started to go into place. And that's when the world really felt like it stopped. Yeah. And so we didn't do a formal announcement. We were just like, it's not appropriate to launch, you know, to, to announce the launch of a dog food company. Um, and furthermore, like there was this crisis happening in the world, the 
political arena oh, was yeah. hot. Mm-hmm. And so we just didn't feel like it was the right time to talk about what we were doing. And so we just started to map in some marketing spend and grow the brand through like digital means only. So some some media, some partnerships, um, but really postured ourselves as opportunistic in the sense that we knew that on-demand delivery had become a thing for people that were used to buying their staples in stores. Uh Um, And so we just tried to start to become accommodating and create multiple access points besides our own digital storefront to have food available for people who couldn't leave their homes, were afraid to leave their homes, um, didn't want to go in stores, or they couldn't go in stores because doors were closed indefinitely. And some of the smaller pet stores don't have the capacity or the logistics, frankly, to do curbside pickup. Sure. And so um, what we heard from, you know, that first tranche of customers was this was the only thing that was available to me in Mm. an on-demand capacity. So we partnered with Postmates. We did on-demand deliveries in LA and San Francisco. But I mean, that had added so much incrementality to our business just by way of being like a convenient, healthy option um, that it really kind of gave us a lot of momentum to then kind of have a tailwind. Mm-hmm. you know, in the midst of this pandemic um, and really give us, you know, I think like some some awareness that maybe we wouldn't have been able to get even through like a formal PR announcement sure. just because, you know, it was it was well-timed and I think just generally like accommodating people's needs. Mm, yeah. Well, it, it it's interesting because during that time, while it is a pandemic and people are kind of like staying at home, but like I said, a lot of people are adopting dogs mm-hmm. and it, it it could be the perfect time yeah. to launch a new disrupting Yeah, product. there is some silver lining, I think, right? in the sense that, you know, I, I would imagine that some of you have heard the news, like there was this clear the shelters campaign. And mm-hmm. so historically you'd go in and there wouldn't be like enough room to house the homeless animals. And it was like you'd go into shelters and like maybe there'd be one dog in some instances, like the stuff that made the news, the shelters were entirely empty, mm. which is great because people, you know, opened their doors to to animals, not just dogs, um, but really like expanded their families. And then that obviously had an impact on the category. Yeah. Um, and so we saw some like really nice trends develop just specific to our industry, which ultimately benefited us. But I think like also just leaves us feeling good that yeah. um, actually part of our part of our like ethos is to give back. And I've got two rescue dogs. Both of my partners have rescue dogs. And so we partner with local shelters to give a percent of proceeds back to those shelters. Um, or if we've got excess product, we give them product. Okay. And so there's like this donation component or like charitable aspect built into the model. Um, but it's something that is very close to us in terms of um, us being able to relate to it because we've pulled animals, uh, homeless animals into our homes. Um, and then also I think it's just like the right thing to do. Sure. And so yeah. it means a lot that like certain things that were great came out of like a pretty— unfortunate situation. Sure. No, that's a, that's a, a good way to look at it. So one of the things is that, so now you're starting a new company, but now you're like, you're into this new world called e-commerce, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. that's a whole nother world, right? That, yeah. Um, you know, now you are in like supply chain and logistics mm-hmm. and warehousing and stuff yeah. like that. Where's your warehouse at? Indianapolis. <clears throat> so it's in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you ship like 
glo- like just domestically or domestic what? US domestic for now. US. Yep. Okay. Got it. That's a big investment. It is a big investment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the the logistics for this industry are complex. Oh, yeah. Uh, more complex than you would think for pet food. But um, yeah, we manufacture domestically. And so like we try to keep everything uh, within arm's reach, so to speak, so we can be on site during production runs and make sure we're running our own food safety and testing. And yeah. I think it gives us a little bit of assurance in terms of um, having confidence in what we're putting in bags. It's like, that's the same stuff we're feeding our own animals. And so I think it should be really high touch in terms of being able to oversee and have some control mm-hmm. of the production process. And what was the marketing channels that you were using initially to acquire your first like thousand clients? Facebook, Instagram, Google. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I had built like so many different media strategies and portfolios that we started with like, performance marketing as Mm -hmm. the foundation of our efforts for customer acquisition. And so we were fishing in the same, you know, body of water everybody else was. But um, I think ultimately, like, we felt different than a lot of the legacy dry format brands that we were competing against. And so um, we saw a lot of just really great engagement and activity from what we were doing specifically in paid social. Hmm. I can, I can see it. I mean, I see a lot of businesses that just only operate that way. Yeah. And they do very well. Did you ever think about, um, this had to come across your mind, or at least one of the partners, of finding like a celebrity to be like the face of the company? Or did yes. you guys ever, of, of course you did, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, uh-huh. I think like endorsement partnerships um, are definitely something we had success with at Casper. And so as we were thinking about like what we wanted to pull from that playbook as an application for Jinx, um, we knew that high profile investors would be like a really great activation tool to Mm -hmm. have in our back pocket. And so we had some um, high profiles invested in the business. And then when we launched or when we had new products or when we sent them something, um, they would kind of post on our behalf without that like transactional relationship, like okay. a, like a pay to play type of thing. Um, and so that was pretty organic. And then we also, um, structured an agreement with Odell Beckham Jr. And he's got like, is that right? Three massive dogs. So now you are what, um, um, about a year and a half into this? Uh, two and a half. Two and a half we years. Were, yeah, okay. we went through like the formation process and yep. building our brand identity and formulating and testing product for a little over a year. And so are you looking to raise more capital now? Where are you guys at? Yes, we are. You it, caught us in the middle of a fundraise. Okay. Um, so we're raising our Series A. Okay. Um, and it's a pretty big round of financing. And it really is intended to support... Um, retail partnerships. So every retailer is looking to grow their category because there's more pets in homes Mm -hmm. and they're really looking for premium postured brands. Um, And so instead of us having to kind of go out and chase some of those wholesale relationships, we've actually received a lot of inbounds. And so whether it's mass retail or pet specialty or grocery, Um, they're all really looking for brands that kind of attract a more youthful pet parent. And Mm -hmm. so we we really kind of target millennials, which is the biggest segment or archetype within the pet category. Um, And then also just frankly have like a great product. 
so that retention and rebuy um, and replenishment is is something that they don't have to worry about. So yeah, we're just really thinking about how to be most thoughtful about like protection and carving out a lane to really scale the business and do it in a meaningful way, but also like a, a fast way. Well, I think the good news is that once you actually start to make money, like the investment gets a little bit cheaper, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. For you guys. Um, and, uh, and it, it, in some cases it could get easier or harder. Um, but it sounds like you guys are, uh, on the same path as like the honest company. It seems like you guys are doing big things. Yeah. You know what? We're uh-huh. close We're we are like ready to sign a term sheet, which once that is, is, you know, firmed up, I think we're all ready for a vacation. Good. You deserve it. <laughs> so where do you spend most of your time? Like, what are you specifically doing these days? I would say in my position specifically, like I oversee and touch every single aspect of the business. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm definitely like a control freak. And so I'm really trying to work on that. (laughs) I was a control freak too. Um, But you have to learn that there's people way more capable at every specific skill set that you think you are decent at, right? That was like my big wake up call in business Mm -hmm. was- Hiring a CFO and hiring a COO and hiring a chief of people success and you right. know, all of that stuff, right? Like, because I was okay at it, but I'm, that's not really my thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, and, and I'm learning that. I think um, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, as a CEO, like relinquishing control to someone with the expertise to build out a team and map talent into their organization and to your point, like do things better than I could ever do them myself um, is something that I'm like slowly becoming more comfortable with. But I like, you know, I think being part of a startup and startup culture is, you know, being in the trenches. And so I, I really like being in war rooms and like whiteboarding with the team and, mining through ideas and challenging people and giving them an opportunity to like debate the founding team and and really like helping them build some muscles um, about how they express themselves and offer opinions and have perspectives. And so I hope that part doesn't change because I think that's what I've always enjoyed about a smaller early stage company. Um, And that very much so I think just like generally energizes the team. Yeah. Um, so for me, another little tip that helped me that I'll mm-hmm. share with you was uh, was finding a coach, right? So I realized that I was really good at this thing called SEO, which you know, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I've spent 20 years doing it, but now I'm a CEO and I'm, I don't know if I'm really good at that. And so I recognized it. And so I found a coach mm-hmm. and the coaches kind of helped me, you know, in life, we have coaches for everything. Like you played sports, you had a baseball coach, softball coach, football coach, right? Yeah. You have, but when you get into business for whatever reason, like people stop that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so that was a big thing for me was finding a coach. My coach's name, I've got a lot of coaches, but my main coach is a guy by the name Cameron Harold. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called Vivid Vision, which you should probably, if I wish I had a copy, I'd give it to you, but you should check it out. Because you should go into the future three years and document the vivid vision of what does Jinx look like in yeah. three years. Like who works, where are you at, you know, everything. What does the color of the walls look like then, yeah. right? So do you have a coach or? I do. You do? <laughs> I do, Good. yeah. But similarly, um, I uh, was introduced to Jeannie during my time at Casper. Okay. And so as I was kind of um, making some upwards movement through management and eventually onto the executive team, um, I really just needed like a leadership presence 
capability. Yeah. And so she uh, was brought into the organization to help a handful of like director level people to kind of just up level into that next kind of VP type of seat mm-hmm. um, from like posture to presence and just generally like how you show up and where you spend your time. And mm-hmm. I would say of all of the professional experiences or exposures I've had, like that has by far been the best investment See? and where yeah. I've like had the most value. Um, They give you the shortcuts, the cliff notes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I think like similar to what you were saying, it's like they make you pause and breathe and take a step back. And I think when you're an entrepreneur and you're moving so fast, Mm -hmm. you don't take enough time to really think about the five-year plan or the 10-year plan. Or if you do, it's fragmented because you're just thinking about like where you want to be and, and how to kind of make decisions today to get there. But I think... Creating that space um, was really helpful for me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think even at Casper, I was just kind of like, I could continue to keep my head down and I could be here for another six years because I loved the founding team and I loved my team that I built and I loved my coworkers and my peers. Um, But I was like, is that really what I want? And then it starts to trigger, you know, another stream of questions about like why you're doing what you're doing and, if you're passionate about that thing and how to qualify it. And so I think like it kind of initiated a little bit of inspiration about doing my own thing and what that timeline could look like in addition to just generally giving me some tools, I think, to manage that that experience and then also just give me some perspective. Awesome. I love to hear about that. Um, So, so important to have like a sounding board. Do you have a board of like a board yet or anything? Or you have, we're forming one through this fundraise. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's another big key uh, to successful businesses growing is getting a good board too. Um, So, one thing. So, uh, like, whenever I've ever swapped out like my dog food, Mm -hmm. right? It's a little scary, right? Because what happens is you swap it out. And if you don't do it correctly, you come home to a mess, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if I want to switch, like how, how do you recommend that to somebody that's listening right now that wants to try out Jinx to get dog food? Yeah. yeah so we recommend a 14-day transition. Okay. And it's essentially introducing the new diet in quarter increments. Okay. And so you take two to three days to introduce the first 25% okay. relative to the total amount that you're serving and then the next and then the next and then the next until you're fully transitioned. But it, it totally depends on the dog. I mean, like my dogs can switch from like our salmon protein to our chicken protein from breakfast to dinner okay. without any disruption to their digestive system or their stool quality. Um, other dogs take longer. Just a little different. Yeah. It depends on what they've been eating from a protein standpoint, how long they've been eating it. If they've got sensitive tummies, like it just depends on your dog. And I think to your point, like, especially if you've had your dog for a few years, you typically know what the triggers are Yeah, uh-huh. uh, in terms of nutrition. And so we recommend two weeks, but it can take shorter. It can take longer. And you should really just kind of use your judgment based on you know, knowing your dog. Yeah. And there's a lot that goes into it. I'm sure they could find a lot of information on your website, mm-hmm. just the educational aspect of it. Right. Because when you have dogs, like I got a 15 year old dog and I've got a three year old dog and yeah. sometimes they eat the same food and they probably shouldn't be doing that. Right. I mean, so 
Um, so I'll be interested to kind of learn. I'm interested now about this. I want to go yeah, check I this out and learn. I would have brought you some product if I See? knew you had dogs. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will go and be one of your customers, like your sister-in-law, and, yeah. and get some dog food. The friends and fam support. For sure. <laughs> so for those that are listening um, and they want to check this out, the dog food, because this is a company that's going to the moon. Mm, and Not you know, that much. Yeah. Yes. Um, so where do they go and, and how do they buy it? <clears throat> sure. So our website is thinkjinx.com. Okay. Um, you can either purchase a la carte or through our subscription program. So because it's a highly replenishable item, mm-hmm. um, you can set it up on a frequency anywhere from three to eight weeks, just depending on what the churn for your household looks like, depending on how many dogs you've got. Okay. Um, and it's really nice because dog food is heavy. And if you've got a dog over 40 or 50 pounds, like you're typically buying a 25 pound, 30 pound, in some cases, like a 50 pound bag. Um, I've had to constantly make trade-offs about like if I'm going to carry home milk or dog food. And so this is nice in the sense that it's delivered to your door. Um, We offer a base diet, but we also offer healthy treats, toppers, and dental chews. And so really like we're trying to own the pantry so you can buy with a single brand through a single destination and get all of the things that your dog needs um, from a consumable standpoint. And so that's kind of the offering in terms of our digital storefront. We're also on Petco.com, Bloomingdales.com, Rover.com, Target.com, and in Target stores. Nice. And then uh, we're continuing to expand through wholesale retail. Okay. All of our handles are at ThinkJinx, with the exception of TikTok. We're just Jinx. Okay. We got in early enough See, to, there it is. to get that one. But yeah, um, but yeah that's, that's where you can find us. Awesome. Well, I'm really looking forward to following the journey and maybe doing a follow-up interviewing to kind of see the growth yeah. here. And I, I really appreciate you coming. I know you're very busy in this startup. I, I still think it's a startup. Oh, it's totally a startup. Yeah. yeah. Um, and coming down and spending uh, an hour with me. So thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah. It's really lovely. This has been the Jason Hennessy Podcast. This show has been produced by Whitney Welsh, engineered and edited by Josh Fisher, and recorded at Hennessy Studios. Please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.